0: I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal, Journal Jam, podcast. Jam podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor medicine cases. All right, we're back with part two of our Journal Jam podcast on laceration and wound repair. We listed a whole slew of questions, and we're going to go through a whole bunch of dogma and see whether they hold for repairing lacerations in this part two. In part three, we're gonna move on to aftercare, which might actually be the most important part. We won't give that away just yet. So in part one, we talked about how to prepare for the laceration. We talked about sterile gloves versus non-sterile gloves. We talked about irrigating the wound. Let's move on to the variety of materials we have to choose from to close the skin and compare sutures versus staples versus glue versus wound closure strips. The brand name is Steri Strips, And we'll look at whether it makes any difference in outcomes, whether you use any of these materials. Now, before this podcast, I had a few biases about this topic that I must admit to here now. So my first feeling is that based on some data from a while back, that for minor lacerations of the hand... We probably don't need to do anything but give the patient a band aid or maybe some wound closure strips. So, if the laceration isn't really deep or it's not crossing a joint and it's not into a muscle or tendon, don't waste your time with sutures. The second thing that I have to admit before we get into this is I love surgical skin glue. I usually stretch the indications a bit for surgical skin glue to include pretty much any superficial laceration that's not over a major joint or other area where there's a major amount of tension where I can get good skin apposition. I combine the skin glue with wound closure strips for extra strength based on some pediatric studies we covered in on EM cases a while back. Now, of course, if the laceration is in a hockey player or a construction worker or someone like that, I'll, I'll probably go with sutures over glue. But for most of us more sedentary folks, I find glue is great. It's fast. It's usually painless, and it avoids a follow-up appointment. Now, I've been using glue for over a decade now, so I've gained some skill at it. It does take some practice and needs to be done properly with adequate amounts of glue surrounding the laceration, not just a tiny strip of like one millimeter on either side of the lac, which I've seen people do, and then, of course, it de And my final bias is that patients seem to hate staples. I find that I need to put in so much freezing before I place staples for them not to be painful, and inevitably, it's never enough freezing, and it often is painful anyways. And I see staples used for scalp lacks a lot. So for scalp lacks, I prefer the skin glue, usually using the hair apposition technique. And if you haven't heard of that, check Academic Life in EM. Uh, they have a good description of it there. And if the scalp black is bleeding a lot, and they can bleed like stink and even cause hemorrhagic shock if you ignore them and say, a polytrauma patient, I usually just use big, wide 3.0 sutures instead of staples, because I find they're better at stopping bleeders. Now, sure, if you're in the trauma bay and the patient's really sick and they need to go straight to the OR, I might throw in some staples. But generally speaking, if it's just a laceration and the patient's in your ambulatory area, I generally avoid staples altogether. Okay. So those are my personal thoughts on which materials to use when. Now let's dig into the evidence. Justin?
1: Yeah. So the nice thing, Anton, is that the evidence will probably support you pretty well throughout all of your opinions. I actually share most of your opinions, but if somebody has different opinions than us, the evidence will probably support them relatively well as well, because it mostly shows equivalence with just about everything. Now, I think before we jump into the studies themselves, I think we should talk about a few issues that will apply to basically every single one of these trials. So first of all, they are essentially never blinded trials obviously you can't blind the doctor performing the sutures and it's pretty hard to blind the patient. Um, Sometimes the person assessing the scar at the end is blinded, but if the patient knew what category they're in, it's pretty easy for that blinding to, to fail the lack of blinding is especially problematic when you consider our second issue, which is that the outcome of almost all of these trials is pretty subjective. Mostly it's an assessment of cosmesis, which is usually on some kind of subjective score. And then even the things that sound like they're more objective, things like a wound infection, if you really think about it, it actually ends up being pretty subjective. When is a wound red enough to count as infected? There's a fair amount of gray area there. So to start with, we have unblinded trials with subjective outcomes, That results in a very high risk of bias throughout. In addition to these sources of bias, I think there are two really complex issues to think about as we go through these studies. And I find both of them really interesting, but they make this data really hard to interpret. The first is the fact that all of the topics that we're going to talk about today are interrelated. So you might look at a study comparing glue to sutures but if you don't clean those wounds at all, or if you're rubbing dirt in them afterwards, or if you use chlorhexidine instead of water, you might get awful outcomes that are completely unrelated to the glue versus suture topic that is being studied. And this is hard because we don't know the best irrigation or the best aftercare instructions. So how do we know if so it's impossible to know if those topics are affecting the studies we're looking at? And then finally, any study of a procedure always raises questions of skill people might have different skill levels and that really might impact the results. So sutures and glue might be exactly the same if they're done by medical students, for example, but maybe plastic surgeons can get better results with sutures. However, I think you got to be really careful with that argument because it's just way too easy to use that as an excuse to throw out science, right? An orthopedic surgeon might say, I know all of the data says that surgery doesn't help in meniscal injuries, but in my hands, yeah, it definitely works, right? We, we can recognize that as hubris, but this is a hard topic. So as I was reading these papers, these four major themes kept popping up. The lack of blinding, subjective outcomes, the complex interplay between all of these issues, the multiple steps of suture repair, and the role of skill. And unfortunately, it makes these studies even harder to interpret than many of the topics that we have discussed on the journal Gem in the past. So that's a lot. But with all of that in mind, I, I think let's talk about some of our options when it comes to repairing the laceration.
0: All right. So I'm looking down your list of topics here, Justin. I see skin glue, hair apposition technique, wound closure strips, and staples. I don't see sutures though. I assume that's because we're just taking sutures as sort of the standard of care and comparing these alternatives to suturing, right?
1: Yeah. So I don't want that to imply that sutures are the standard of care. But in almost every trial, when one of these options was compared to the, quote, standard care, that standard care was sutures. We'll use that as our baseline for comparison. And actually, I might as well mention it here. If you choose to use sutures, there are a number of trials that have compared how far apart you should space your, uh, your stitches. And as far as I can tell, every study that has looked has found no difference. So you're no better off putting your stitches really, really close together, like two millimeters, than you are spacing them two centimeters apart. By three months, the wound is exactly the same. So if you do choose to do sutures, I think you're just trying to get it enough so that the wound is coming nicely together without a significant amount of tension. But again, that's another one of those complicating factors that's not discussed in any of these topics. How did they actually do the sutures? I don't know, but it's the baseline for all of these studies.
0: Is it fair to say that how close the sutures should be to one another, that a good test for that would be if you kind of pull the skin on either side and it gapes in between the sutures, then they're not close enough? I don't know. What do you think, Dr. Cochran?
2: Yeah, I I think that we've all seen our fabulous medical students go in there and, and basically put in about 800 different sutures. And we know patients love to count them. How many sutures did this take to close? And I think what's important is to know that a lot of that time, that wound is going to weep Is there are some bruising underneath there, depending on the mechanism that having a little bit of space in there to allow some of that liquid fluid and, and maybe even contaminant that's trapped under that wound to kind of leak and out and for the wound to kind of heal close that over suturing it, you are going to get train tracking. You get it almost every time just because you are creating, you know, those scars on the skin on either side. And then you're, you're tensioning the wound close with, the with the sutures that putting less in is probably beneficial. And then, you know, as we're looking through this evidence that adding things like skin gluing, scary strips to help to support that wound are going to be really important. And just to jump back to something that you said, Anton, about, about, uh, you know, getting good analgesia and making sure that you know, you're decreasing the pain on your patients. We we don't have time to kind of go into, you know, the evidence about getting, uh, you know, wounds well numbed up. But one of the things that we often aren't using that has evidence and we're using it in children, but we almost never use in adults is lead or some of those topical yes. lidocaine-related gels that we put on. We can use those in adults. If you're trying to save yourself some time or be really efficient in the department, what I definitely recommend for small wounds that you're going to glue is have your nurses throw some lead on that wound. Even if it's an adult, you're not going to put you know, probably 30 or 40 mils across a 10 centimeter laceration, but two or three centimeters on the face or the hand of a patient you're going to glue throw that down, walk away, and I guarantee the lidocaine will help with the pain control of that slight burning from the glue. But more importantly, that epinephrine is going to control the bleeding at those wound margins, which you really, really need for good glue closure across those wounds. Any blood that's in there is going to prevent that adhesive from sticking to the skin margins. And so you want to make sure that they're comfortable, but more importantly, that there's enough control of the bleeding on the site for that glue to work.
1: Yeah, such an important uh, tangent. And I think that one other soapbox issue I have when it comes to let is all the studies say it needs at least 45 minutes to really work. I like to leave it on for an hour. If you're have, if you not having good success with let, it's because you're rushing it. But yeah, if you're ordering it, it's probably too late. I don't understand why every patient with lac should just have let put on at triage. Can we not just make that the standard in emergency medicine? Put let on everybody. Who doesn't want their laceration to be pain-free? Everybody, yeah.
2: right? Come on. And also I'd say don't let them put the let on and then put gauze on top. All you going to do is absorb that lead right off the wound. You put the lead on top and then you throw a Tegaderm or just if they're in a place where they can rest wherever that wound is, then just put the lead on and leave it alone.
0: I'm so glad you guys are saying this because my colleagues have always looked at me funny when I order (laughs) lead for every patient that comes in with a laceration. That's just like my automatic thing. Um, And sometimes it can even prevent having to put in additional freezing. And that way the other advantage of it is and you're not distorting the tissue so that you might have a bad cosmetic outcome with all this distorted tissue that you've crammed tons of xylocaine into Um, so yeah i i'm not sure why we only use let for kids we should be using it for anyone that has a laceration that comes in
1: yeah and anton just to follow up on your word i think patients change the game entirely for me for let because i'm actually it's almost 100 percent of my patients need nothing other than let but i routinely leave it on for a full hour and they are perfectly, completely anesthetized, as good as anything I can get with a needle. But if you try to rush it quicker than that, it, you're going to run oh. into, uh, into problems.
0: Yeah. And what I'm not sure our, have... our admin would enjoy the uh, additional 45 minutes of length of stay. Put, I, it but it, but it, but triage, put it on a triage. Put it on a triage. Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: And you can actually see a visual line of where your numbing is because that epinephrine is going to infuse into the wound margins. And where that epinephrine is going is often where your lidocaine is going too. So you should see that white outline around the wound. That's actually where you're going to have that analgesia within the skin margins is where the where the epinephrine is hitting it as well.
1: I like the tangent. Anton, can I bring us back to your original question, which was how do we figure out how many stitches to put in and how close to do them? I actually, your suggestion is, I think, a bit of a pet peeve to mine where I see residents pulling on both sides to see if they can get the wounds to, to come apart. I think rather than doing that, which is an unnatural movement that isn't going to happen once the patient's at home, unless maybe they're a toddler and picking at their wound, what I have is just have the patient move their joints through a natural range of motion. If they're getting gaping of the wound with natural movement, then I probably need another uh, suture. But the whole idea of like pulling it on it from both sides doesn't make a lot of, a lot of sense to me because I think you're just going to add more sutures than you than you really need. So just watch the wound as the patient moves a little bit, and as long as the edges stay uh, next to each other, I think you're in good shape.
0: Yeah, that sounds perfectly reasonable. There are only a couple of weeks as of the release of this Journal Jam podcast till the EM Cases Summit. Some of your favorite EM Cases guest experts will be speaking. We've got Justin Morgenstern, who you've heard on this Journal Jam podcast, Sarah Reed, Aaron Ciel, Tarlin Hidayati, Jesse McLaren, Anansuama Nathan, Michelle Klayman, Scott Weingart, Nur Khatib, Andrew Petrosoniak, Rob Samard, Walter Himmel, Sarah Fui, David Carr, Ken Milne, Burke Tillman, David Uralink, Catherine Varner, Leo Sommer, Kirsten DeWitt, Ruben Strayer, and many, many more. Virtual simulations run by Sarah Fui in her virtual recess room will be happening each morning. Symposiums on rural EM, wellness, and global EM every morning as well. Prize giveaways, Q&As with the speakers. So your chance to ask our guest experts specific questions and get live answers and you'll be helping support the EM Cases podcast and website, email blast, and the entire EM Cases learning system. It's a way that you can show your appreciation for all the free open access education you've received over the years. So hope to see you at the summit, February 2nd to 4th. Remember that it'll all be recorded and available for three months afterwards. So if you miss a day, no problem. You can watch it later. Get your tickets at emcases summit.com. All right, let, let's move on to skin glue. So that's like I was saying, kind of my personal fave. I'd love to know if my practice jobs with the evidence. So, Haley, skin glue?
2: Yeah, so I think skin adhesives are probably the best studied alternative to sutures, but I'm not sure that means we can give you a definitive answer, Anton. I'm sorry. We can go back to 2002, you know, 20 years ago, it doesn't feel like 20 years ago, and look at the only Cochrane review on this topic. So, at this point, there are 11 RCTs comparing adhesives to sutures. And they're no difference in any of the measures of cosmesis. So long-term laceration is likely to look, to, look the same. And again, we're looking at visual analog scales. There are a few clear benefits with skin glue. Pain scores are lower. It's generally a lot faster for us. But there's some downsides as well. Skin glue can cause more short-term erythema, probably more of the local reaction to the chemical, and the rate of dehiscence is a bit higher, probably around 2%. So there have been a few more RCTs since then with basically the same results, and cosmetic outcomes are always the same. Infection rates seem to be about the same, but as we've seen with all the data we presented, that really is just variable between study. And glues faster, causes less pain, and results in a little bit more dehiscence. So the other thing that comes up in these studies is cost. If you look at the material costs, glue might be more expensive than sutures. I know they always hide ours away because they often go missing during uh, during the course of the week for one reason or another. So, But there, that expense is really only a few dollars. But when you factor in all costs, including things like return visits for suture removal, glue is about half the cost of dissolving sutures and a quarter of the cost of non-absorbable sutures. At least according to one study out of Ottawa.
0: All right, again, my bias, but my guess is that the higher dehiscence rate seen with skin glue compared to sutures was probably because many docs do not use a wide enough application of the skin glue. And that's also why I often add strips with the glue to hopefully prevent that 2% dehiscence rate. And Justin, I think you'd agree that dehiscence usually is actually not that big of a deal. Uh, they tend to heal just fine anyway, right?
1: Yeah. So I wrote up two big points in my discussion point thing here. And the first was dehiscence. And for a while, honestly, this did worry me a little bit. It seemed like a reason you might want to avoid glue. There, There is a potentially clear harm. But then I think you actually need to stop and think and reflect on it. Why do you care about dehiscence? The only reason that dehiscence matters to me, I think, is because of the idea of a long-term impact, a long-term scar if they have this dehiscence episode. But in every single one of these studies that reports increased dehiscence, and again, it's only like 2% increased dehiscence, the cosmetic outcomes are identical in the two groups by three months. So that sort of tells you that these early dehiscences must be small and they are probably clinically irrelevant. Um, and actually, I would think if I was guessing that these studies were, would probably be biased a little bit against glue because if you're if your wound dehissed early and then you were going to get it assessed later you probably aren't that happy with glue and that might impact your uh, impact of the cosmetic or your rating of the cosmetic outcome and so the fact that the cosmetic outcomes were identical even though you had a clearly visible um problem with your wound repair I I think is reassuring to me the other big problem for these studies of GLUE is that the exclusion criteria for all of these trials is difficult to replicate and it leads to some issues of possible selection bias. So for the most of the part, these studies have required or selected out just clean, uncomplicated lacerations. Uh, Some studies even excluded anybody with lacerations in any area with hair. Most of the studies excluded areas where there was some tension Every study was a little bit different, but it's really hard to know then exactly who to apply these results to. But I I think it's important to say just because a patient didn't make it into these trials doesn't mean that it's inappropriate to use glue. It's just harder to know. It just means that we don't have science for that population uh, yet. Uh, Personally, I'm like you, Anton. I am very liberal with my use of glue. I use glue in contradiction to all of the exclusion criteria for these trials. I, I use it in areas of hair. I use it in areas of pretty high tension. Honestly, as long as I can talk to my patient and and tell them that they need to take it easy for for a couple of days. So based on this data, I am I am very liberal with my use of of glue. But it's hard to know how to apply this. So I guess I'd ask you, Haley. You know, considering the exclusions from these trials and your clinical experience, you know, when when exactly do you reach for for glue? Or I guess maybe more importantly, the question is when do you avoid it?
2: Sure and I think that this data smells of the plastic surgery agenda this time <laughs> who's assessing these wounds, but I hope that we're all not reaching for a glue in that five to 10 centimeter deep into muscle gaping laceration. That's not really who we're talking about. And we know that. So the cosmetic outcome of a small to one to two centimeter laceration, naturally opposing wounds, so naturally sitting with the, the edges abutting, um, that becomes to his is going to be really, really minimal. I think the problem in is that when we're trying to pull really high tension wounds together with glue in it, and as Anton mentioned that, you know, we're often not putting enough of a footprint of the glue down to actually hold those wounds together. So, you know, a no-no for me is a wound that is almost always going to dehiss. We're talking about, you know, lower legs across the shin, or if that wound's naturally gaping, if that is at rest or moving, you're seeing that wound pull apart, do not use glue in that wound. That's not going to be a good one. So, The other place is over over joints because, again, that tension or you're going to watch that skin pull apart. And if you're unsure, just have the patient range it. You have them numbed up. See what the skin is naturally going to do and the different forms that that wound is going to take through the patient's natural movement. So you know, maybe don't close a super contaminated wound because you're effectively creating a pocket for pusher trapping everything in there. So, you know, if you are going by our last episode where we talked about sort of cleaning wounds out, then maybe, you know, that's probably totally fine. But if you're worried about contamination, maybe just put some sutures in so you can naturally allow some of that material to leak out. And the same thing with, you know, blunt trauma and a lot of bruising underneath there. So... Another place not to use that along the same vein is places like the groin or the genitals or the mouth. We don't use this on mucosal surfaces. We're not going to use this around the rectum for other sort of genital trauma. And I often try to avoid using glue around the eyes unless you have really steady hands. Or you can use a template. So what I'll often do is take one of those tegaderms. I'll cut sort of a, you know, an oblong slit and maybe place it over the area where I'm going to glue. But the eyes and the skin around the eyes kind of naturally appositions and is great for glue. But if you haven't seen a patient who's had their eye glued shut by a well-meaning physician trying to close an eye wound, then uh, you know I think just it's just a matter of time. So a really great way and a cosmetic way of using glue is actually to run deep absorbable dermal sutures under that gaping cut. So if you do have tension, maybe you're moving into the three or four centimeter wound, maybe run a run of good dermal sutures or deep dermal to pull that wound together. So when you're watching it range, it's actually sitting pretty well at position and then add glue on top. You're going to avoid that patient's necessity to have sutures removed. You're also going to remove some of that train tracking and it's a great technique to try.
1: I'm excited because we can finally have a, a little bit of controversy in our podcast uh, here. I, I'll disagree with you on a few points, which <laughs> sure. is good. It's, it's good to have some dis- discussion here. Um, I I, honestly, I, I love glue a lot and I've been using it more and more and more liberally for years. And I was really worried at the outset. So I actually have a private email address where I ask patients to uh, send me pictures of their wounds at three and six months, uh, just to make sure things were healing, healing well. And for after about a decade of doing that, I don't think they are really almost any contraindications to glue. I use them on at least seven centimeter, probably 10 centimeter lacerations relatively routinely, gaping wounds, shins for sure, right over top of the knee, absolutely. (laughs) And almost always they do good. Now I don't do this, I'm not making uh, decisions by myself. I tell the patient, look, there's a reasonable chance. This is right on top of your knee. There's a reasonable chance this glue is going to pop pop off, uh, but you just told me you don't like needles. So it's up to you. We can either put on this glue and you can work really hard not to to bend your knee too forcefully for the next couple of days, or I can, I can put in some sutures. I'm happy to, to do both. Involving the patient in these decisions is really, really important. And I find that decision- patients really, really like glue. But maybe the last part is, and where we can bring it back together, is I entirely agree with you. The idea of comparing these one versus the other, rather than in combination is, is sort of silly. Often these are like, if I honestly, if I get a a 10 centimeter wound that that's gaping glues, not the go-to, but often you put in one or two dissolvable stitches right in the middle. And you're like, Oh, this this looks pretty good, but two stitches isn't going to keep it done. But uh, two stitches plus glue is, is more than enough. And it just, I think makes me more efficient and, uh, and patients happier they get out, they get out earlier. So I like the mixed technique, uh, point, uh, as well. But I think I am personally using glue in a lot more patients than you are. Uh, honestly, I think if you measured it, I'm well over 90% of all lacerations that I see in the emergency department get glued in, in, in my hand. And I, and I try to follow up with most of those patients and they do pretty well. I am not saying that I have good evidence. This is the Journal Jam podcast, and I think that both of us are somewhat supported. And I think if you wanted to be very strict, your your approach is probably better. But I think just because patients were excluded, it's a scientific mistake to say that that means they're excluded from clinical pra- practice as well. Evidence based medicine involves judgment, involves shared decision making.
2: I'd love to know how many tubes of glue you're using on some of those. So that tiny little vial is only going to get <laughs> me so far. So I'd love to see that sort of mounting pile of glue tubes underneath your patients there, Justin.
1: (laughs) I think this is where uh, different companies have different things. I I have my strong preferences for the type of glue that I pick up. One hospital has it and one doesn't. And I'm sure that my administrators don't like it because yeah, they have to order a lot more glue when I'm, when I'm working. But again, if the patient wants it, that that's all, I'm I'm at work really for them. So at the end of the day, they make the decisions. I don't.
2: And I know you've mentioned uh, about using it on palms and soles, and I think this is quite controversial about using this on the hands. And now I I don't have I don't have any uh, off the top of my head published studies for you, but I have a very practical trial. So. Glue itself is very sensitive to oils in terms of its breakdown. So if you ever have a spare tube of glue, maybe borrow one of Justin's, try to dab some on the various areas of your hand, on the dorsum of the palm, the edges, of the fingers, the wrist, and to actually just see how long that glue lasts. And what I find sort of routine is anything on the palms and the surface because of just the friction and the natural oils, it really only lasts about 24 hours. Uh, you know, on the dorsum of the hand and further up the arm it asks a little bit longer. But with hand washing with use of the hand, you find that it actually goes away quite quickly. And again, you know, my practical study is biased by the fact that we're you're putting it on healthy hands and with a cut, someone's less likely to use it. But I find that that's a great pearl for for medical students and residents as I say, you know, like, how long is this really going to last if you're putting it on some areas? So if you have some glue, put it on and then just, you know, just watch naturally what it does on your skin.
1: So I, I think there's a lot of rule rule for different techniques that fall well outside of the, the evidence here. Um, and I think you got to be a little creative, but understanding that glue will fail if it's an area that's going to be picked or covered in oil or w- washed all the time is a very, very good point.
0: Yeah, everyone loves choice. So physicians have lots of choice here. Of course, we're doing shared decision making. So the patient has lots of choice. So choice is good. I love it. We had mentioned the hair apposition technique, which is basically crisscrossing some hair over the scalp lac uh, to act as sort of an anchor and then gluing the crisscross. Again, just check out Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. They have some great visuals there. Now, my bias is that it's a bit of a finicky technique, and I'm not convinced that it's really any better than simply gluing the lac um, and making sure that the skin edges are in good apposition. Haley, can you tell us a little bit about the evidence for the hair apposition technique?
2: Sure, Anton. There's actually just one randomized control trial. Appropriately, it's called the HAT trial. And a small amount of patients, 189 with scalp lacerations between 3 and 10 centimeters, because obviously you're not going to glue someone's beard together, but you could. They had their wounds sutured or closed using the hair apposition technique. Now, they excluded the patients you'd expect needing resuscitation, arterial bleeding, or significant contamination. The hair apposition was a fair amount faster. It's about five versus 15 minutes. There's less pain involved, two versus four out of 10. And at seven days, 100% of the hair apposition group had adequate wound healing as compared to 96% of the suture group. By four weeks, all wounds were healed. But scars were bigger in the suture group than the hair apposition group, which is interesting. And when asked if they would want the same procedure in the future, 84% of the hair apposition group said yes, compared to only 10% in the suture group.
0: Yeah. It's amazing that everyone kind of talked about the hair apposition technique after this RCT came out and it was this exciting thing and everyone started doing it, but really it's not even 200 patients. And again, I do find that it is kind of finicky and takes a lot of time. And what I really want to know is not how it compares to sutures, but how it compares just to glue alone.
1: Yeah. I'm with you entirely, Anton. Now, I call what I do the hair apposition technique, and it was even though there's a single RCT, it was enough for me to incorporate my practice immediately, basically, because it was clear that patients preferred this to sutures. But what I'm doing, I I guess I should probably describe it as just a hybrid technique, and honestly, I'd be surprised. Maybe some sticklers out there are doing what's actually described, but I don't think anybody's taking two strands at a time and doing one dab of glue as they they go along. That just doesn't make any sense. So personally, I do a a twist of hair at two or three places along the edge of the wound Wound, whatever it takes to get it nicely lined up, hold all that down and then glue the entire laceration. So I'm using the, the hair, but I am gluing the entire length, sealing the uh, entire laceration. So it's not, it's it, it's a hybrid, but I think it works exactly the same. And that that that's my technique here. Uh, scalp lacerations in my mind are really easy. Uh, aside from the, there's arterial bleeding and it, it, it's an, a nightmare. As long as that's out of the question, my laceration technique is entirely based on the length of a patient's hair. If their hair is short, I just glue directly to the scalp. If their hair is long, I use this modified or hybrid hair apposition technique. Either way, all I bring into the room with me is glue. When I see somebody with a scalp laceration,
2: Justin, I think you have a glue agenda. I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> so, as a long and a short-haired guy, and
0: a short-haired guy, a short-haired guy <laughs> I
2: know as as the long, long-haired voice in the group, I think that. One of the things to to recognize, and it's is not that you can't use it in long hair, but I think that you're going to recognize they're going to have a hard time brushing or combing around that glue. So what I would say is that, uh, you know, bring out your hairdresser skills and, and make sure you're making kind of a nice part around the area that's closure, just so it, it actually makes it easier for them to groom, to kind of hide your work, to kind of fold their hair over, because if you're just sort of pulling hairs or it's a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit wonky in terms of how you're putting it together. And sometimes that's just how the wound is going to present. Just trying to make it a nice sort of like clear path. And then that way it makes it easier for them to kind of care for it as well. If they can see it, it's, you know, kind of well approximated people like nice clean setups for their cuts.
1: Yeah, and let me add one other hint there, because this glue really is designed or it comes off of skin very easily, but it does not come off of hair very mm-hmm. easy. So it's pretty common to have somebody at seven days where the glue has released from their, their skin, but it's clumped in the hair. But if that's the case, this is very, very easy. Just like you said earlier, this skin glue dissolves very, very easily. So all they have to do is put some either polysporin or or petroleum jelly on that clump uh, when they go to bed at night. And in the morning, it'll be completely dissolved. It'll be gone. But it is something to warn your patients about, or they'll be ticked
0: off a week later. So many nuances to think about. So we mentioned combining glue with wound closure strips for non-hairy lacerations. It seems that the wound closure strips are used for professional hockey players when they get face lacerations all the time. So if it's good enough for a world-class athlete who's on the ice sweating up a storm, they should be good enough for most of our ED patients. But this is the Journal Jam podcast, so let's talk evidence. Justin, what's the evidence for wound closure strips or... The brand name, which we'll try to avoid, steri strips.
1: <laughs> I, I just can't say wound closer strips. they're, they're clearly stereo strips. It's like Kleenex. It's just that that's their name. But but I'll, for you, Anton, I'll try wound closer strips. Uh honestly, these always seemed a little like a cop-out in the emergency department to me. I mean, right? The patient came all the way to the emergency department. They waited hours to see me, and then I'm basically just giving them a band-aid. Uh it doesn't seem like they were gonna be all that happy with that. But honestly, actually, the more that I've used them, the more versatile they seem, especially when they're combined with other options like glue. I would say the evidence is very similar to the evidence for skin glue. I don't think we want to go into every single uh, paper. There will be a write up if people want more. I think we can just look at the big systematic review. This is Tandon in 2021. They included all studies. So this includes both emergency department traumatic wounds, but also patients in the operating room. And these wound closure strips were closed compared to both sutures and to skin glue. And the big conclusion, actually the biggest conclusion is probably just that the evidence is weak. These are small studies at high risk of bias. So we got to be really cautious of any conclusions. But the second biggest conclusion after that was that there were basically no difference at at all. The infection and dehiscence was actually the same in all three groups. Uh, There was only one statistically significant result. And that's that wound closure strips actually had statistically better results than glue when it came to cosmesis. But that was entirely based off of a single small unblinded RCT. So given that glue seems to be equivalent to sutures, I doubt that's a real finding, but it would be great to see some follow-up research there. I I think if you look into the individual studies, wound closure strips are definitely faster and less painful than sutures. That certainly makes sense. But if you try to summarize this all up, I think the bottom line seems to be, you know, although the evidence isn't strong, uh, if you're debating between wound closure strips and glue and sutures, you are probably equally justified with any option. And like like you, I, I tend to combine glue and Steri-Strips together. And actually, right before we published this very same week, just two days ago, there was a brand new study published that uh, compared uh, glue alone with stereo strips plus glue in pediatric facial lacerations. This is MUN2022. And actually, despite the fact that I love using the combination together in this trial, there was absolutely no difference in any of their outcomes except for adding those stereo strips in added extra times as compared to just gluing it by itself. Now, I think that being said, these are relatively straightforward lacerations. So I'm not sure why you would want to add stereo strips in that case. Personally, I add the stereo strips when it's a complex lack, and I need the stereo strips to get the wound edges all well approximated before I add the glue. And that's not what was studied in in this uh, study here. So I think there's a ton of room for judgment and flexibility in in choosing these repair techniques. And stereo strips definitely have a role. I'm I'm not sure exactly when I, I, I reach for them, but they have a role.
2: I gotta say, this really changed a lot for me. I think that, you know, I, I felt the same. I am why is a patient waiting and just to get her, our fancy hospital bandages? But I think it's one of those things that I, I never really reached for and that I think was really relying on dogma. And now that I'm seeing some of this evidence, especially with what we're talking about, I really feel I'm gonna use a lot more stereo strips in some of these wounds. And in particular, sending patients home with stereo strips if their wound hisses themselves. We're always talking about empowering our patients and educating them to care for themselves. So providing them maybe some seri-strips if you find this is gaping then pulling it across. One of the things that Anton mentioned before with glue really actually corresponds to the same treatment with stereo strips and giving them good footing on the stand. Don't cut them a millimeter on either edge and making sure that you have a good sort of strip across. So it, it is larger in terms of the actual coverage than you're going to get, but you're actually just going to get more coverage um, and better longevity of the wound adhesive strips than you would otherwise. There's also those small tubes of yellow adhesive that you'll find. It also helps. It comes in a glass tube that you break similar to uh, the skin glue. And what that adhesive does is it just sort of, you know, creates adhesive across the across the skin and you can you can stick the Steri-Strips down in it and it gives them a little bit better longevity than the just the adhesive on the back. So the other thing, and, and we've been talking about surgical literature, I'm sure we've all seen those patients who've come in where they wouldn't hissed after surgery. I know I had a, a patient who'd had a scrotal surgery and, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable with their wound dehissing just hours after their surgery and coming back. So using seri strips to kind of pre-close or delay closure of, you know, dehissed surgical wounds I find is also really beneficial to try to give that patient a bit better cosmesis when the sutures have failed.
0: All right. So those are a lot of great tips about glue and wound closure strips. Um, I've already told you my biases against surgical staples, but let, let's hear more about staples to see if I should change my practice around them. You know, maybe sending your patient home looking like Frankenstein is a good thing. Dr. Cochrane. Let's hear about the evidence for staples.
2: You betcha. I've always been an office supply aficionado. So, you know, reading through this data has been great for me. Staples have had a long history and including when it comes to scalp lacerations where I feel they've been used the most and also in the OR, but the evidence is poor even compared to our other options. So there's six very small randomized controlled trials. They're all unblinded. They're all at high risk of bias. How do you blind somebody to metal in their skin? They're quicker than sutures across the board. They gave different answers about cost, but they're probably close enough to be equivalent. And there's no difference in cosmesis or one complications. Although the studies are probably too small to be sure. I know that, you know, they often, when we were talking about the amount of sutures to use, I find that there's always just an overabundance of staples when you see them coming in from, uh, you know, a knee replacement or hip replacement. But one study said that patients were equally satisfied with sutures or staples, and, and that's really who matters to us. So another study said that, It was equally as easy to get sutures or staples removed. I've never had staples removed, but they seem like maybe they're more uncomfortable, but I don't have any data to back that up. From a pure literature standpoint, we don't have a ton to go on. Sutures and staples look about the same in these studies, but the data, you know, spoiler alert, is poor quality, and we're going to have to rely more on clinical experience and patient preference.
1: I think there is a bit of data from the surgical literature here, and that's actually where I most commonly see staples, seeing as I basically never use them myself, but patients will come in with them. And I was I was sort of surprised. So there's an older systematic re- review from 2010, looking only at orthopedic surgeries. It concluded actually that infection rate was significantly higher with staples. Although, again, there were only a couple studies here. And then there's a 2020 meta-analysis looking at all surgical sites. Uh, it has 42 RCTs, more than 11,000 patients but despite 42 RCTs, basically all of them are rated as very low quality. And again, they found basically no difference between sutures and staples, although the overall adverse event rate was about double uh, in the staple group.
0: I would think that the patient preference for staples versus sutures was similar in the surgical literature because, let's see, they have about 200 milligrams of propofol running through them <laughs> while they're getting the staples put in. So they're not too worried about the discomfort of the staples. Anyhow, at least from my experience, it's very different in the emergency department getting enough analgesia for the staples not to be uncomfortable. So let's just get down to sort of the practical part of it. When did the two of you use staples in your practice? Obviously, I've told you my bias against staples, but I still do use staples in the patient with a self inflicted wrist lack. I do this because often they have an urge to relacerate themselves, and hopefully, putting in staples will will prevent them from recutting themselves or reopening the lack. And then, like I was saying before, for the really sick polytrauma patient, when time is really of the essence, and I just need to get that lack closed really quickly, then I find staples useful. But aside from those two things, uh, I can't remember the last time I've used staples.
2: I agree, Anton. I, I'm really not using them all that often. And and in the trauma patients, it is really helpful to try to get them closed. But remember, if you're sending them into CT scan, you're going to get some artifact from the metal being in there. So be really thoughtful about it. If if they've got lax on the legs and you're stapling them, fine. But when you're putting them in the head, you just don't want to cause any confusion uh, around the imaging that you're getting done. So maybe staple them afterwards. Um, I will sometimes staple closed wounds that are going to the OR that night or the next day. So say a large open fracture, you know, a forearm that has deep tendon cuts, I'm just going to pull the skin together and staple them closed because they're very quick to remove when the surgeons are operating and, you know, helping to control the bleeding and just bringing the wounds together just so you can bandage things or get things splinted is really helpful. Um, I feel I actually did a lot more in residency. I remember doing a lot more staples for scalp wounds and sending people home, um, but I have moved on to absorbables to decrease that patient's hassle in getting them removed. So I I also think you're a really bad person if you put staples in any child. I've seen this a few times. They're quick closure in a squirmy kid. I know you just kind of hold them down one staple and they walk out, but trying to get them removed is a nightmare. So please do not put them in children. It's a bad idea.
1: This is my favorite part of the episodes when we get to moral judgments. Yes. I, I,
2: I appreciate <laughs> it entirely. It. But
1: I, 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 I agree with everything that both of you guys have said. I Honestly, I can't remember the last time I used sta- uh, staples, maybe when somebody told me to in, in residency. And after spending a lot of time reading this literature, I don't see any reason for me to start. Now, if somebody out there is using a lot of staples from a pure literature standpoint, I don't see any reason to tell them not to use staples. But I do think, we've said it a few times, evidence-based medicine is more than just the literature. And I think it's really important to incorporate judgment and our patients' values. I was surprised by that one study we mentioned above when patients were equally happy with, with staples, because I have talked to a lot of patients and patients hate staples, at least in my experience. And <laughs> Patients hate, like sometimes they show up in the emergency room wanting to come out and they complain more about having the staples taken out than when I put in in sutures. So I, I personally, I'll stick with my practice of avoiding staples almost uh, entirely. Uh, I stick to glue with, for as I said, 90 to 95% of all lacerations, hair opposition on the scalp. And then if something's uh, really needs a suture some absorbable sutures, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, more. But again, I think the clear point data is not strong enough. So we shouldn't be too strong in any of our conclusions here. And clearly patients need to be involved in these decisions because the clinical science is not enough to define one clear winner out of all of these options.
0: All right. So in selected patients, it doesn't seem to matter if we choose staples or glue or wound closure strips or sutures. That being said, I imagine that sutures are still by far the most commonly chosen option. So let's focus in on the one big decision we have to make there, which is do I pick an absorbable suture or a non-absorbable suture? Um, you know, in, in the old days we did non-absorbable sutures for pretty much everything except maybe kids' face lacerations. And it seems like the pendulum's swinging more and more to using absorbable sutures for pretty much everything. Justin, what does the what does the literature say?
1: So Anton, I think this is another topic that's going to be pretty difficult to cover from an evidence standpoint. There are many different kinds of absorbable sutures. There are many different kinds of non-absorbable sutures. The kinds you pick might matter. And then, of course, the outcomes are going to be impacted by all the other aspects of care, irrigation, antibiotic ointments. And then we're going to have the normal problems we've already talked about with small, poor quality trials. Again, I don't think we want to talk about every single paper in detail, but we should go over just enough of the data to get a sense of its weaknesses, and so that hopefully our listeners will understand why, at the end of the day, we say that there's still a fair amount of uncertainty here. But despite that uncertainty, personally, I feel very comfortable using absorbable sutures mostly all the time. So let's jump into this data with a meta-analysis from 2007. This paper included all trials, and so that means that that includes patients who were in the emergency department, but also in the operating room. And despite having very broad inclusion criteria, they only found seven RCTs, and these RCTs are tiny, from 44 to 166 patients, and none of them were fully blinded. And you know, if you just read the conclusion section, there is no statistical difference. But the lack of statistical significance is not the same thing as equivalence, and the point estimates in these studies are all over the place, and the confidence intervals here are huge. And so it's quite possible that there is an important difference hidden in that data, and that the data is just way too messy or too underpowered to see it. So for example, the odds ratio for dehiscence is 0.16. Clinically, that's a massive difference, even though it's not statistically significant. However, somewhat surprisingly, that difference favors the absorbable group. They apparently have less dehiscence, according to this one meta-analysis. Similarly, in the subset of studies that only look at traumatic lacerations, the odds ratio for infection was 0.42. Again, nowhere close to statistically significant. But we would obviously be interested in if one of our treatment options had double the rate of infections, and for what it's worth, the infections here were actually also lower with absorbable sutures, which surprises me. Now, to be clear, these point estimates are almost certainly chance findings. The numbers we have are just way too small to have any kind of uncertainty. Overall, this meta-analysis just paints a very messy picture with a ton of uncertainty, and when that happens, I do think it is best to look at some of the individual trials because even though you might remain uncertain at the end of the day, by reading individual trials, you do get a sense of sort of what specific biases might be shaping this this data and that might shape your practice clinically.
0: All right. So we should fly through a bunch of these low-quality RCTs. Haley, can you start us off on them?
2: Yeah, you betcha. So just to you know put my bias out there. Justin, you love glue, and I love absorbable sutures. So, you know, the first one here on our list in terms of study is Karunas in 2004, a single study from a pediatric emergency department comparing plain glut to nylon in a very select population with lots of exclusions. There's no statistical difference between the group, but that just me because the trial was small. 62% of the absorbable group had perfect outcomes at four months as compared to 49% with nylon. A 13% absolute difference or a number needed to treat of 7.5 really seems like it could be clinically significant, but this trial is 95 patients, and it's just too small for us to tell.
1: Yeah, the next trial paper I have on this list is Tijani in 2014. It's an RCT from two different hospitals comparing Rapid to Proline. Uh, Like the last paper, lots of exclusions. Honestly, I find this really problematic. In patients with no health problems at all, who have perfect, small, clean cuts, I expect perfect outcomes basically no matter what I do. I could probably put duct tape on these cuts and they would have fine outcomes. What I want to know is how these techniques work in the patients that I'm actually seeing, complex patient with complex lacerations. But unfortunately, those are the patients these trials exclude. But anyway, this trial included 113 patients and they tell us, uh, but they tell us a little bit about that selection bias I was referring to. During the trial period, 4,600 patients were seen with lacerations and they only enrolled about 100 of those 4,600. So selection bias for sure. And yeah, for what it was worth, outcomes were the same in both groups. Blinded plastic surgeons looked at three months, they couldn't tell the difference. But I, I think there's, again, one other complicating factor that I think I wanted to discuss here. And that's that the outcomes were actually pretty bad in both groups. Both groups only scored about five out of 10 on these laceration repairs. and um, this comes to that point I made right at the beginning of, of skill. And maybe this is where skill comes into our RCT. Maybe in different people's hands, you get much better, uh, repairs. We've talked about it a little bit in, with the bougie and airway control, right? In the Hennepin study, people are getting close to a hundred percent success rate with the bougie. But then if you put it into a large multi-center study, It it looks exactly the same as if you're not using the the bougie. So skill might matter here. But I I think the point of reading it is to know that, you know, even though they're showing no difference between the groups, when you're only getting outcome scores of five out of 10, it's hard to trust that data a long way. I'm hoping I get better outcomes uh, than that in, in my patients, but who knows?
2: I agree, Justin. I think skill and technique can really shape a closure, but but also just to mention that we're intervening on a process that's naturally going to recur regardless of what we do. Like you said, you could put duct tape on that, you could put maybe some dried leaves, you could put maybe some magic crystals, regardless of what your approach is to laceration repair, that skin, its job, its evolutionary design is to heal. Now, whether it's unsightly or not unsightly that's, you know, the cosmesis is a lot of the points that are brought up in these studies, but that skin is always going to heal. Now, that's why we often exclude immunocompromised patients with, you know, poor perfusion or vascular or cardiovascular risk factors because the skin is going to heal worse than than a normal healthy population. But skin overall with more time is always going to heal. So there's a few great resources for suturing techniques outside of your standard simple interrupted. And you know, if there is something that you haven't tried, maybe it's time to try or look at new techniques. But it's not to say that what you're doing is wrong. And if you found a faster or simpler method for doing something, I think that's always beneficial. And when you think broadly about it, plastics and derm are using the same equipment we're using. They just have more time and more practice with what they're using. So yes, they have better wounds or cleaner. They're, you know, giving patients wounds rather than having the patients present. But we often default to quick closures to get our patients out sooner and the department flowing because doing a comprehensive repair and lacerations can take time that we often didn't have. So maybe that's some of where we're seeing some of the bias. Our last trial on our list is Luck in 2008. This trial only looked at facial lacerations and compared fast absorbing gut to nylon. They enrolled, again, a nice small cohort of 88 patients, and only 47 of those completed the trial. So, unlike the last trial, outcomes in this trial are fantastic, rated 92 to 93 out of 100 in the two groups. And the poor follow-up and tiny trial are obviously going to cause problems. But we wanted to include it because it included a survey of parents, which provides an important perspective. Laceration repair is not just about the cosmesis at three months or adverse outcomes. In this trial, parents said absorbable sutures were more convenient for them. And as a parent with a kid, they definitely are. They said they are more likely to recommend absorbable sutures in the future. I know my patients always ask, are these dissolving stitches? Are they going to come out on their own or do I have to have them removed? And I think it fits with our general experience. People seem happy when they get absorbables.
1: Yeah, this is uh, surprisingly to me, this was the only study that mentioned this, but it's the first words out of every one of my patients mouth. Are are those absorbable? Are those absorbable? So I think it it tells you if there's not great evidence one way or another, your patient's going to decide for you. I think you made another great point about uh, the different techniques we can use. Actually, one of the reasons I love using glue so much is I save so much time on 90% of my patients that I actually don't use simple interrupted sutures almost ever anymore because the ones that I choose to repair are almost always complex. And because I've saved so much time everywhere else, I can take my time and do a really great fun repair. You know, you're no longer bored of all these simple interrupted uh, sutures so you can take take your time with it. So I, I think you raise a really good point that it is worth learning some of these plastic surgery uh, techniques, even if you're only going to use them once in a while. Trying to answer this absorbable versus non-absorbable. Again, I, there is a reason we didn't go into every single paper here is because they're all pretty bad. They're all pretty similar. They're all small. They'll have lots of problems. And so our our answer here is that the science is too weak to say anything too firm here. If I had to make a best guess after reading all of these papers, I'm fairly certain that at the end of the day, cosmesis is going to be basically the same when you compare absorbable and non-absorbable sutures. There is some conflicting data when it comes to both infection and dehiscence, and there's a lot of bias there. I have a hard time making a guess either way, But I'm almost certain that the difference is going to be small in absolute terms, a couple percent in either direction. And then ultimately, we said it many times, there's no one size fits all answers. The combination of clinical judgment and shared decision making will be required. Again, for the majority of my patients, I don't use sutures at all. Glue and stereo strips work just fine. But when I do use sutures, it's close to 100% where I'm in the absorbable uh, rate because I ask my patients and I can't remember the last time that a uh, patient chose a suture that had to be removed. There are a few in, in those really high tension areas and somebody who wants to get back to the gym because they're doing a lot of exercise and doesn't want to stop lifting. There are times when I might want something stronger, but most patients want these absorbable sutures. And so that's what I give them.
2: I agree, and I think the patient population is important. Do not put non-absorbing sutures in patients that are not going to have them removed. For example, some of our homeless patients or active substance-using patients who are only really presenting when they have a complication of their substance use, transient populations without follow-up, or patients who can't actually participate in wound care or active, you know, discussion about uh, shared decision making. I'm always disappointed when I'm caring for one of our disadvantaged patients and they have overgrown nylon sutures still in their face. So well intended small 6-0 nylon sutures, delicately repairing that scalp laceration from a fall that no one's removed because we put them in and expected to be removed and they're not. So that's a great population to use absorbables. Do not use non-absorbing sutures. Another category outside kids is patients with severe intellectual disability or dementia that are unlikely to actively participate in suture removal. So again, back to Justin's point, a great place for glue, a great place for strips. If we're equivocal on the data about cosmesis, about infection rates, then why not use something that's simple that's going to make it easier for the patient, that's going to decrease that trauma or that fear of having sutures put in their wound and they can be painful to remove so it can still be uncomfortable and scary when you don't understand what's happening to you so maybe absorbables are really the right thing to use in this in this group
0: it seems like again this clinical equipoise yet again and so if patients prefer them maybe absorbables are the way to go i have to admit that i probably haven't been using absorbables as much as i should but that was a lot of information about the various options we have for repairing lacerations Uh, We've talked so far about wound closure strips, about skin glue, about hair apposition, staples, absorbable versus non-absorbable sutures. And overall, again, it doesn't sound like the evidence gives us a clear winner. We really do have to be mindful of the exclusion criteria in these studies, and we have to use just common sense and clinical judgment. We should ask our patients about their preferences, as we've been saying, and it does seem like if you think there is a best way to repair a specific wound, that you're justified in using that technique, so it means we're all winners, yay. (laughs)
1: The more time I spend with this literature, and honestly, the more time I spend in medicine, the more respect I give the human body. The human body does a really good job healing itself. And most of the time, it will do that in spite of rather than because of what I am doing to help my patient. I think there's one other paper that uh, I wanted to mention before we move on. And I think you had already referenced to it because this entire discussion has sort of been biased. We sort of assumed that we need to do something. That's one of our biggest biases in all of medicine, feeling like we need to act when often benign neglect is the best course. So there was a recent RCT, uh, Quinn 2022, that looked at exactly that. So if you take small hand lacerations, only up to about two centimeters, so obviously small wounds, uh, but these were all wounds where the physician looked at them and said, sutures are necessary. So that was the baseline emergency doctor thought sutures were necessary, and they randomized them to either sutures or nothing, just a dressing. And at three months, there was absolutely no difference judged by blind doctors. So again, this is a very select group of lacerations, and the trial is too small to say anything overall and too small to say anything about complications. But I think it fits with the overall hypothesis that our interventions, all the stuff that we're talking about today has a pretty small impact overall. And ultimately, our goal is to let the wounds heal. And so I make my decisions based in large part around what I think is going to be least painful and most convenient for my patient, as well as also considering things like efficiency and ED flow and less about the actual outcomes to the patient, because everything seems to be pretty equivalent in terms of long-term cosmesis. Uh, and so, as I said, right at the front, for most cases, for me, that means that glue for the majority of the time is the winner.
2: I agree. I think cosmesis and simplicity are always going to win out with me. Absorbables or deep absorbables, glue for larger wounds, glue or wound closure, strips for simple cuts. And, and I think what's important is to consider that the benefit that comes with laying hands that, that are often discounted in any of these studies is that patients really benefit from connecting with their physicians, with their providers, feeling like they're being cared for, being educated on what's going to happen, being told they're going to scar, regardless, they've cut their skin, it's always going to scar. And so, you know, I think I feel bad when they're waiting for hours and we don't do anything or we minimize what we're doing. So I think that's always an opportunity for education, for involvement, for speaking to your patients. That's my Zen space. I like to, you know, chat with them. I find out so much more about what they're doing. I, You know, it kind of takes me out of that busy emergency department when I'm able to sit down and do some suturing. And I, I find I'm always the most connected with my suturing patients than I am with some of the other ones where I'm, where I'm busy managing other things.
0: So, this marks the end of part two of this journal jam. In part three, we'll talk about probably the most important part of laceration management, and that is aftercare. What the patient should do after they leave the ED, which ultimately may affect outcomes the most of pretty much anything we've talked about. So, in part three, we will cover the following questions Can wounds get wet? Do they need dressings? And if they need dressing, what kind of dressing? Do they need topical antibiotics? Do they work? Are prophylactic antibiotics for animal bites required for everyone or just some patients or none at all? Are there other medications or treatments for wounds to minimize infection and improve cosmesis? And then at the end, we'll wrap up the whole thing with our practical takeaway points. So stay tuned, all you EM casers. If you like the Journal Jam podcast, you'll probably like the EM Cases Journal Club. This is a new EM Cases foam offering. Like the Just for Nugget summaries and the Q&A of the Week, you can sign up for the Journal Club email blasts that come out about once a month by hitting the red subscribe button on the EM Cases website. Rohit Mohindra delivers concise, clear, critical appraisals of EM articles that aren't on everyone's radar. Each is about a two or three minute read. Real quick. And we have expanded versions on the EM Cases website as posts with EBM Pearls and Pitfalls master comments from clinical epidemiologist Shelly McLeod. Let me know what you think of the EM Cases Journal Club. Hope to see you all at the EM Cases Summit February 2nd to 4th. Until next time, take it easy.